Welcome to Cal St. G Academy, the educational podcast of the Parish of Calvary St. George's. These podcasts are intended to inform and deepen your faith so that you can share your faith thoughtfully with the world around you. For more information about the parish, go to calvarystgeorges.org. And now, break out your moleskin prayer journal, and let's get started. The Year of the Bible is a series of Cal St. G Academy. Each episode will cover a new book of the Bible in a concise, in-depth, and ultimately edifying way. These lectures are recorded live each week at Calvary Church in New York City. So the book of Genesis, as you probably know, is the first book of the Bible. More than that, it's the first of the five books of the Torah. Maybe you've heard of the Torah. It's also sometimes called the Pentateuch. It's also called the five books of Moses. These are the first five books of the Bible. And they're, they're, each book is its own thing, but they're also a unit together. And I think that's helpful for us to know because a lot of the themes we're going to be talking about in just a minute will be seen in these other books as well. Now, there are those who say that the book of Genesis and all five of the books of the Torah that you see listed up there were penned by one person at one time, namely Moses. There are others who are convinced that there were multiple sources from different times with different concerns that were brought together to make up the text of Genesis as we have it today. Now, these people in the latter camp are not haters on Moses or haters on the tradition. They're trying to be faithful Christians. And I would say that while I have no problem with a lot or most of this stemming back to Moses, I lean toward the latter option. For example, I don't think that in the book of Deuteronomy that Moses writes about his own death. Or that Moses says, because there's a part in Numbers that says Moses was the most humble man in all the world. I think it kind of defeats the purpose if Moses were to be the one to write that. That said, even if you entirely disagree with me, and in circles I grew up in, this would be a very controversial point. The Episcopal Church, a little bit less so. Um, But I am going to be looking at the book of Genesis as a unified whole. And that's because, no matter how it all came together, that is how the final form of the book as we have it today has been constructed. It has been unified into a coherent whole. It's not just random sources put together with little to no relation. So, I'm approaching it in a way that shouldn't bother even if you think that Moses penned even those sections that I just talked about. So, let's get back down to important things. Now, the consensus among biblical scholars, a whole lot of the Bible and Genesis in general, is there's no consensus was reached. But if there is a consensus among all biblical scholars, whether traditional, critical, or those in between, it is that Genesis, at the very least, has been fashioned into a unified whole. What I just said earlier. And why is that the consensus? Well, because it has an obvious structure. A structure that's actually really helpful, not just for the biblical scholar out there, but for you and me, the average reader, too. This can help us read its text. 
And we're going to cover a whole lot of ground today. So there's going to be times when I'm going to say, this is really important. And I'll say for other things, just let this wash over you. Because this is a little too much. But we have to do that because Genesis has like the most, maybe, of any book in the Bible. So this part that I'm about to say is important. And, and it is that the book of Genesis has a literary structure that is made up of a repeated genealogical formula. That may mean nothing to you right now, but it will in a minute. I'm going to say that again. The book of Genesis is, has a literary structure that is made up of a repeated genealogical formula. Now, what does that mean? It means that at key points throughout the book, there is this formula that introduces and connects different sections of the book. What is that formula? These are the generations of dot, dot, dot. You see that, for example, in chapter 2, verse 4, these are the generations. And in chapter 2, verse 4, it is of the heavens and the earth. But later you'll see these are the generations of dot, 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 Adam. These are the generations of Terah, the father of Abram. And these, this formula, this Toledot formula, is very important for how we read the text. And that's why I focus on it. So for shorthand, and for the rest of this lecture, I'm going to call it the Toledot formula. And I call it that because Toledot is the Hebrew word for generations of, or descendants of. Um, so the, the Toledot formula is found in Genesis ten times and ten different places, and it connects genealogy with narrative. Now, there's a whole lot I could say about the total formula. I could have a whole class on it, but that would be only fun for me, and so we're not going to get bogged down there. But it is crucial to note that the relationship between the Toledot, the extended genealogies, and the narrative is that they introduce us to an unbroken line of descendants tracing from Adam all the way to Jacob and beyond at the very end of the book. And the major concern of this structure, as you see up there, is to describe both creation and world history in light of a divine will for a chosen people. To describe both creation and world history in light of, a, of the divine will for a chosen people. And we'll unpack that in a second. So, I'm going to be doing two things in this class today. And I'm going to start with a thousand foot view and move to a hundred foot view. So I'm not going to cover that much in a thousand foot view. I'm going to cover main themes and the main theology. And then we'll kind of dive into the particulars with the hundred foot view. So this is, if you're a note taker, or if you really want to make sure this is in, this is the part I want you to write down notes. Or this is the part that I really want you to focus in on. And the next section, the hundred foot view, let that kind of wash over you. So what is the theology of Genesis? This is what we're all here for, right? What does this have to tell us about God and ourselves? So we, we can break down the book of Genesis into two parts. Genesis 1 through 11 is often called the primeval history. 
and Genesis 12 through 50, often called the patriarchal narratives. That'll make sense in a minute. So first, the primeval history. This is the, the section that extends from creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth all the way to the Tower of Babel. I think for a lot of us Christians, we think of the fall as the climax of the beginning of the Bible, when it's actually, that's not that the fall isn't really important in Genesis 3, but the climax of Genesis really happens at the Tower. And we'll see why that's really important for how we read it in a second. So what's the, the theology of this section, the primeval history section? Of Genesis 1 through 11. Well, there's this great, he is incredible. He's this Old Testament a scholar who was a German, who was in the, didn't really want to fight in World War I, was made a prisoner of war. So this isn't just any scholar. This is a scholar who was a real pastor, who saw people die, who dealt with real people on the ground with needs and concerns and hopes and disappointment. And his name is Gerhard von Rod, which is an incredible name. Uh, but he writes this as the theology of chapters 1 through 11. The purpose of these chapters is to depict a history of increasing alienation from God, which started with the expulsion in the Garden of Eden, grew with Cain's murder of Abel, and from the heavenly disorder until this history of sin reached its climax in the Tower of Babel, which caused a threat of God's returning creation to primordial chaos. And that's a lot, but that is just, that's gold. Genesis 1 through 11 is this history, this showing of this increasing alienation not only between humanity and God, but also the created order in God. There has been this rupture. And we see this not just with the fall, with the taking of the fruit, etc., but with Cain killing Abel, with Lamech bragging about his murders, with the flood, where God essentially is like, do over. Noah, Adam 2.0. But what does Adam do? Adam sins. And the climax, even more than the flood, right, is humanity saying, we want to displace you, God. We're going to set ourselves up as gods. And that is the end of this section. And we are left, if we are to read this as if for the very first time, is God going to just reset altogether? He kind of does with the flood narrative. This has all happened again. Is God done with us? And as we'll see in a minute, this is very important because a lot of the final form of Genesis as we have it and the Old Testament as we have it now is most, is, it's put together, it's pulled together in the exilic period when the Jews are no longer in Israel but are in exile in Babylon and it looks like all the promises of God are null and void. And it's as if God is reverting creation back to primordial chaos. And this is why the Bible is deeply existential and deals with real needs and fears and disappointment and despair. So I'm, I'm jumping ahead of myself because I'm getting pretty into this. But, uh, so second, there is the patriarchal narratives. And, and at some point that name has got to change with 
uh, our, our, our current views of what patriarchy means, etc. But this, is, this was called this way before uh, this was an issue. So this is a, a, if you're an aspiring Old Testament scholar, this is something that we'll probably need to revisit. But the patriarchal narratives, this section runs from Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 all the way to Genesis 15 with his grandson Jacob and the 12 sons, the 12, what would be the 12 tribes of Israel. And as I mentioned earlier, um, yeah, the patriarchal narratives go from chapter 12 to 50, and this is after Babel. Uh, Again, the climax of the alienation of the relationship between God and humanity. And again, more than just humanity, the created order has been ruptured, and I'll get to that in a second. But we see in Genesis chapter 12 that God does not quit on us the way I quit on people who failed me a couple times. God decides that he is not going to quit on us and that he's not even going to start over, kind of like he did with the flood and with Noah, Adam 2.0. Instead, he calls Abram. And this is interesting because in, G- in Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel, the, re- like the reason this is the climax of alienation is humans are displacing God. They're trying to make a name for themselves. But God in chapter 12 makes a name out of Abram, who would be Abraham, who is a nobody. This person is, would not be recognizable in the ancient Near East. He, he comes from no people. But God has chosen to make his name great. And not only that, but he calls Abram, again, a no-name, to be a solution to the problem of the world, of what we just read about in the first 11 chapters. Abraham and his descendants were called to set in motion the reconciliation of the world to God. Hence we see the move from primeval through patriarchal history as a, an, as a move from the universal to the particular, right? The first 11 chapters of the Bible are not dealing with Israel per se. It's, it's everybody. But here in Genesis chapter 12, the move is from the universal to the particular. And hold on to that thought. Because I think that has a lot of good to deal with us today, who so often, we 21st century New Yorkers, want to get to the, per- the universal, and we say, any way will get you there. But here, according to Genesis, and according to like our best spiritual <laughs> fathers and mothers, they say you get to the universal through the particular. And here we have that with Abraham. Again, I'm going to unpack some of that in a second. Now, Abraham has promised three things. Abraham in chapter 12 is given a promise. And again, the theme of this book, and probably of the Torah as a whole, is that this is the God who promises. And not just promises, but keeps it. So Abraham has promised the land, Canaan. He's promised a great number of descendants. And he's promised that through him, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Again, the particular to the universal In him and his family, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And as we see these patriarchal narratives play out, we see stories that show the gradual fulfillment 
of these promises in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's twelve sons. And that said, along the way, there are all kinds of threats to the promise. All kinds of doubts about their fulfillment. But over and over again, the theme is that despite all evidence to the contrary at times, God keeps his promises to his people. And this isn't just for the Israelites, but this is for you and me who view this as our scripture still today. So, let's move to the hundred-foot view of... uh, I probably should have given you that, I'm sorry. But we're going to move to the hundred-foot view of the book of Genesis. And this is the section that the section I just gave you, I want you to kind of hold that in mind. I can email you what I said. I can give you this. But this next part, I want to wash over you. This is kind of a, a quick run through the book, pointing out other, probably just a little bit lesser important theological points along the way. So again, put down your pencil or your pen and relax. So we're going to start uh, again. We're going to go back to the primeval history, chapters 1 through 11, and then jump to the patriarchal narrative, chapters 12 through 50. So, um, and this, this runs the risk of overload. That's why I really say put down your pencil. The first part is what I want you to grab. So in light of the framework I just gave you, uh, and what was that framework for the primeval history? The increasing alienation from God starts with the expulsion from the garden and climaxes at the Tower of Babel, which again causes a threat of God's returning creation to a primordial chaos. Here is where I'm going to unpack what that means. So, Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We all kind of know that. The first, as I said, toledot formula. It's about creation. In this chapter, God creates in a way that no one else can. The Hebrew word used for create in this chapter is bara. And there is no human analogy that works for this. It's a technical verb. It's, only, it's, con- it's activity is confined only to God. So it's, you've, maybe you've heard theologians talk about creation ex nihilo, or creation out of nothing, creation out of no pre-existing stuff. This is where they get that. But it's also interesting to note that in Genesis 1, chapter 2, God's creation is portrayed as coming out of a primordial chaos. That is, there's a theological point being made there. It's, the move is from chaos to creation. And this will be a very important theological note later on, not only in this book, but in other books of the Old Testament. And we'll even talk about it a little bit next day or, or uh, next week with, with Exodus. For when God threatens to really punish or leave Israel because of its great sins, it is compared as if it's a return to chaos. It's compared to the flood, a decreation. So it must be noted that creation, and so in addition to what I've just said, it must be noted that creation here in chapter 1 is declared good. Initially, it's harmonious. It's great. 
And humanity, you and I, are made in God's image. There's nothing, according to Genesis 1, originally wrong with creation. And not only that, but creation is becoming the man and the woman in the story, right? They till the ground. Creation is good, but it's going somewhere. And yet, in its becoming is when we see, and I don't want want to jump ahead too quick. But in Genesis 2, as I just mentioned, we see the first Toledot, and that is, these are the generations of the heaven and the earth. It connects the cosmic creation with the story of humanity. And here, yeah, we see that human, human beings are tilling the ground. Creation is harmonious. But as I said, it's not static. It's becoming. And all of this harmonious relationship between humanity and God and humanity and humanity... Um, it's suddenly ruptured. This, if you've gone to Calvary St. George's for two minutes, you know about chapter 3. And you all know about the narrative of the taking of the fruit and the expulsion from the Garden of Eden. And it is from this point on, with the fall, until chapter 11, that we see this initial alienation grow worse and worse. Chapter 4, we see the symptom of this new disorder with Lamech. Lamech kills, much like Cain kills, but Lamech is proud of it, and he arrogantly boasts of it. And Lamech is the first figure in the Bible portrayed as having more than one wife. This is to show this, this has gotten out of control. And he, again, he boasts of all this. There's no repentance here. In chapter 5, it's made clear that despite the increasing alienation between humanity and God, humans, despite everything, are still image bearers. We are still reflections of God. And that call to be fruitful and multiply and to be gracious masters of the earth is still there. In chapter 6, we see this weird uh, story of the Nephilim. Maybe you have heard of this. And in the story, um, it's portrayed as the offspring of angels and the daughters of humanity. And what this story is really getting at is it's showing that this alienation between God and God's creation is cosmic in scope. It's affected everything. Creation is in disorder. Now, in the second half of, uh, of chapters 6 through 9, we have the story of Noah. Right? As I mentioned earlier, kind of an Adam 2.0. And we, we, we hear about, we read about the great flood, the deluge, which is found throughout the ancient Near Eastern literature. The, the flood narratives are not just found in the Bible, they're found in a whole lot of places. And now... Remember what I said in Genesis chapter 1 about the move from chaos to creation or chaos to order. Again, we see here a kind of reverting back to that primordial chaos, a decreation, so to speak. Um, But it's not completely a decreation. There is a brand new start with Noah. And yet, Adam 2.0, Noah, what happens not soon after they come out of the ark, 
Adam fails too. Adam sins. That's chapter 6 through 9. And then in chapter 10, we get this, the great genealogy that's called the Great Table of Nations, which brings this Noeric, Noah, Noah era, I can't say that, to an end. Uh, and we see the explanations for all the different peoples of the earth after Noah here. Now in chapter 11, again, not long after the Adam 2.0 experiment failed, um, we come upon the story of the Tower of Babel. And again, what may seem climactic is the flood, right? Because there's a real narrative behind it and it's intense. But in the text, really, it's the Tower of Babel is the ultimate climax of this first, first section. Again, humans are trying to displace God. And God, like before in the flood, God comes down and he judges. But again, not by decreating, or worse, giving up on his creation once and for all, what it may have felt like to the Israelites who were in exile. But this time, he judges by scattering the peoples and confusing their languages. And then we have another genealogy. Again, the Toledot formula comes over and over. That's the only reason I talk about it. Uh, And in this, this time, it is... Sorry, I lost my place. It narrows in on Shem, who was a son of Noah. And it narrows in on that Shemite line. Again, this unbroken line from Adam all the way to Jacob and beyond. And here we see it through Shem, and it zeroes in on Terah, who is the father of Abram. Abraham, right? The universal to the particular. Now again, as I mentioned earlier, chapters 12 through 50, this, this is the patriarchal narratives, and you, and you guessed it. A total formula. These are the generations of Terah, whose son is Abram. This, inter, this, this is what brings us to this new section and connects these two parts. And... In Genesis chapter 12, which is one of the most important chapters in all of biblical theology and the history of redemption, Abraham, as I said earlier, was elected by God and given a promise. I'm going to say it again. Abraham has promised land, offspring, and they are to perform a special role to be a blessing to all the nations. A single man. A single people would set in motion the reconciliation of God to the world, the world to God. Now, I'm going to, that first section I've talked about pretty much every chapter. I'm going to do a little bit less of that now, but try to be as in depth. Again, keeping your framework, which I told you at the beginning, in mind. Letting a lot of this wash over you. Chapters 12, 20, and 22, we see the testing of Abraham's faith. In this God and in the promise. And we see this testing of his faith in light of threats to the promise. What are some of these threats? Well, Sarah is barren. We see when Abraham and Sarah are traveling, kings taking in Sarah because they thought she was Abraham's sister. And he said, she's my sister because he was a little bit of a coward. This could have been a threat to the promise of descendants. 
But most importantly, we see the threat to the promise in that famous chapter 22 with the binding of Isaac, which often also called the sacrifice of Isaac. We're going to talk about that more in a second. Throughout all of these challenges to the promise, though, God protects, God provides, and God makes a way out of what seems like no way throughout. So in chapters 15 and 17, we see the covenant God made with Abraham. Where And it's very important to note this because there are other covenants in Scripture. But in this covenant, the emphasis is placed on the sovereignty of God's grace in providing a covenant completely from the divine side and not the human side. This is like... This is a one-way promise, whereas we'll see next week the promise made to Moses is, if you keep the commandments, you will keep the land. Here, it's, it's on God's end. God has made the promise to Abraham, and he gives a sign of this covenant with circumcision. So we see God making the promise, and the sign of that promise is circumcision. Now, skipping ahead to chapter 21, after thinking she was barren and there's no hope and she's too old in age, what does God do? God makes a way out of no way in chapter 21, and Abraham and Sarah give birth to Isaac, which fulfills the promise, or part of the promise. But in chapter 22, right after, right, it's like the pro- she couldn't have children. We can't have children. In fact, we tried to do it our own way through uh, Hagar. God was like, no, trust me. But the very next chapter in 22, we're not sure if Isaac's going to make it. We see the testing of Abraham's faith in a way that none of us have ever been tempted or will be tempted since. With the binding of Isaac, all the promises of God are at stake. All of Israel's hopes and dreams could end with the death of Isaac. And I think that a good interpretation of this chapter really treats it as a threat to the promises of God. This text, again, read oftentimes by the Jews in exile in Babylon, right? They feel like they've been clear cut off from the promise. Many of them have been taken out of the land that was promised them. And it felt as if God was chopping them down on the chopping block. You can see how the people of Israel resonate with this story of the binding of Isaac. And yet, despite everything, I I love it, Jake loves to say this, despite at times all evidence to the contrary... When you and I don't have any faith whatsoever, God makes a way where there is no way. And we see that also with the exile. Now, some people interpret that text, and I think this is fair too. I don't think it's as primary as like a, a, a call to end child sacrifice. Um, like you see the nations out there sacrificing children we don't do that kind of thing. And there may be truth to that because the place where Isaac is said to be bound is the place where sacrifices are made at the temple spot. 
But the primary emphasis in the final form of Genesis is this was a great threat to the promise. And yet, Abraham, unlike you and I, the only other person who comes close or who surpasses him is Christ, has faith despite what seems like all evidence to the contrary. Now, in chapter 23, uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah, dies. And this leads to the buying of the burial plot uh, of the land that God had promised to Abraham. So this is the first time in Genesis that the people of Israel, the people of, of Abraham, are actually acquiring the land. They own part of the land now because they buy from a Hittite this land where Sarah, his beloved, will be buried. Again, a partial fulfillment of the promise. From chapters, uh, I don't want to skip this, in chapter 25 too, Abraham dies and what he's buried in the same plot as Sarah. Again, the, the one to whom this is promised is now in the promised land and for the people they have the first chunk of it. Now, from chapters 25 to 27, I think this is up there, right? Yeah. Um, We witness the narrative of Isaac. And the narrative of Isaac is much smaller than the narrative of Abraham. But Isaac is Abraham's son, and Isaac is given these promises by God, too, and directly. And in this short story, we see, if you remember, a very dysfunctional family. Uh, Their sons, Jacob and Esau, were not... Very friendly with one another. In fact, uh, Isaac's own, wa- Isaac own wife kind of gets in between the two sons. Um, and we, we see also, what I think is important, is that Isaac's second son, Jacob, is served by the firstborn, Esau. And that is very unlike all the rest of the ancient Near East. In the rest of the ancient Near East, there's this system of primogeniture. The firstborn gets the land, gets you know, the wealth, and the others get some things, but this, this is the one. But here, it's kind of upended and reversed. And we'll talk about that more a little bit uh, in less detail in upcoming weeks. Now, in chapters 28 through 36, we see the Jacob story. Abraham, Isaac, the son of Isaac, Jacob. And it's interesting to note that while Abraham has, as I noted earlier, the ups and downs uh, of his his story of faith, right? There's times when he sells his wife out. There's times when he's just lost all faith. But then, you know, he does have a lot of faith with the episode of the binding of Isaac. Jacob uh, doesn't have nearly as much faith as Abraham. Uh, In fact, uh, it seems that Abraham's response was more important than, than Jacob, the narrative. And this may be significant as we look forward to the New Testament and the true, the ultimate kind of descendant of these people who, uh, whose faith is, is, is not so much different from Abraham. So in, in chapter 28, God makes the promise that he made to Abraham and Isaac. He makes it to Jacob as well. And this promise is made in many ways despite the scoundrel that Jacob was, especially for the first half of the book. I mean, read it. He steals the blessing from his brother. He steals the, uh, 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 the other thing. I can't remember off the top of my head from a brother. And then he runs away. Um, he is, his name kind of means deceiver. 
Now, in jumping ahead to chapter 32, when we start to witness kind of what might be a change of heart in Jacob, we see the curi- curious wrestling match with the angel. Uh, and Jacob wins in this battle, in this battle where he is wounded. Um, and we see his name, this is the most important part of it, his name is changed from Jacob to Israel. And that, like, you know, the, the light should be going off, right, for the people of Israel. This is, you, sometimes you see in the Bible, O God of Jacob. Uh, this is a, the God of our ancestor. And right after Jacob is where the 12 tribes of Israel come from. So again, this, is, this emphasizes his static as the status as the ethnic ancestor of the Israelites. This will be important for the rest of the Old Testament and the New. Um, now in chapter 35, we're almost there, we see that Jacob has 12 sons by their mothers Leah and Rachel. And again, these are the sons who make up the 12 tribes of Israel. And then in chapters 35 and 6, 35 and 36, we see here the reconciliation of Jacob to Esau, his older brother. And interestingly enough, this is kind of a reverse of what happened right at Genesis chapter 4. Cain killing Abel. Here, I, Esau, on any kind of level, had a right to be really angry with Jacob, but they reconcile. It's as if it's like an undoing or the reverse of what happens in that period of the increasing alienation between God and humanity. Um, now, let me change this line. Uh, in, in this, finally, it's the last section. Um, actually, I was supposed to put that up earlier. I'm sorry. In this last section of the patriarchal narratives, uh, Joseph is introduced on the scene. Now, what's important about Joseph is um, there was, Joseph is the first of the, the promises are directly made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the promise is not directly made to Joseph. It's reiterated to Joseph and to the 12 tribes. But there's an importance in the narrative of this triad. And that's why oftentimes we'll say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Obviously, this promise is true to their descendants. But these three seem set apart in a special way. So now in this section, Joseph is introduced on the scene. And this part of Genesis looks a whole lot like the book of Ruth that Jim Monroe is going to unpack for us in a couple weeks. And, that, and the reason I say that is instead of seeing God like directly intervene here and there, and it's not that he's not in the Joseph narratives, God is kind of portrayed as behind the scenes. And I think this has to do a lot of times with the need for our trust in God when we don't know exactly what God's up to. Now, in Genesis 37, Joseph is betrayed by his brothers. You probably heard about the polytechnical, the, the, or not, the, the, the coat, uh, and all that. But he is betrayed by his brothers and kind of, sort of, accidentally, not accidentally, sold into slavery in Egypt. In chapter 39... Jacob is in Egypt, but Jacob has success there. The bearer of the promise has success in a land that's not even his own. And in chapters 41 and 43, after he's imprisoned and the success looks like it's gone away, and again, it looks like the promise of God to his people, maybe at least to Joseph, is questionable. 
He, had, he interprets Pharaoh's dreams, these dreams regarding a famine. And he is portrayed as wisely administering Egypt's unstable food supply. And so ultimately, we see the fulfillment of the promise in Joseph here in that Joseph essentially saves Egypt. He is a blessing to the nations. And not only that, but Joseph is used by God to later save his family, right, for their famine. Now, in chapters 44 and 45, Joseph, um, after this kind of scene where he's interacting with his brothers, his brothers have no idea who he is, they haven't seen him in decades, and how could their brother, who they sold into slavery, be a vice-pharaoh, essentially, in Egypt? They have no idea uh, who this is, but Joseph kind of plays with them until finally he reveals himself as their brothers. And again, like in the... The story of Jacob and Esau, there is a reconciliation that takes place, a kind of reversal of what we saw in the first 11 chapters. And, yeah, so in chapter 46, Jacob, who has not died, but he's just grown really old, um, he emigrates down to Egypt to be with his beloved son, Joseph, and because there's a famine in Canaan. And in chapter 49... That's up there. Uh, We're at the end of the book now. Jacob pronounces in this kind of, it's almost like a song, only it's kind of of not too, but he he pronounces the future destiny of all of his 12 sons. And it's the future destiny of the 12 tribes of Israel. And what's interesting to note, well, I I don't need to get into that yet. We're almost done. And in chapter 50 then, uh, the last chapter, There's a funeral, Jacob finally dies, and there's this funeral pilgrimage back to Canaan, back to the land that was promised. And he is laid there where Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, all of them had been buried before. Again, the people who were given the promise are in the land. Except that the rest of them are not in the promised land. The book of Genesis kind of ends on a cliffhanger. Uh, The 12 sons of Jacob are now living in Egypt because of a famine. And once again, at the very end of the book, we see a threat to the promise. Will they be able to get back to the land? Will God give them the land that was promised them? So the theme of this book the God of the promise, or the God who keeps his promise, extends through to Deuteronomy. And we're kind of left here at the end of Genesis as a whole with, will God be faithful to his promise? And what's really supposed to kind of be going through our minds is, despite our fears, despite all evidence to the contrary, God has made a way out of no way before, and he can be trusted to be the one to make the way out of no way in the future. So in conclusion, and this really is the end, um, we've gone from the creation of the world to the sojourn in Egypt, to them in Egypt at the end of the book. We've seen the patriarchal narratives play out, And we've seen the stories that show the gradual, partial fulfillment of these promises to the patriarchs 
despite constant threats. And over and over again, the theme is that despite everything, God keeps his promises to his people. And by the end of the narrative about the 12 sons of Jacob, the Israelites have been preserved from the great famine. Uh, But again, there's that new threat. But it's as if the reader, you and I, not just the Jews, not just those in in post-exilic or in in exile or post-exile, but you and I who've been grafted in to the family of Abraham through our Lord Jesus Christ, when we read this, what should be clicking on our minds is, wherever we're at, God is the one who is faithful to his promises, and we can lean our whole weight into him. And even when we don't, even when when Abraham, the model par excellence of faith, he too doesn't, God continues to make that way where there appears to be no way. So there's a lot more where this all came from next week when we'll take an in-depth look at Exodus. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Cal St. G Academy. All of these podcasts are recorded at live events and lectures hosted by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. Want to hear more? Stop by the church sometime and attend one of these events live or swing by one of our many services where we seek to rightly divide the word of truth week by week with sermons that always point to where we end and God begins. Find out more about all of our events and offerings by visiting calvarystgeorges.org. And if these free podcasts have meant something to you and you feel led to support our ministry, head on over to calvarystgeorges.org giving and make a donation today. Thanks again, and we hope to see you soon.